All right, thanks again, Ben. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for visiting today. If it's your first Sunday, like Spence said, I want to welcome you as well uh, to our church. Thanks for uh, coming today. We are in a series right now, so starting a series today in the book of Philemon, which I think Peter mentioned. Uh, it's the, the first week of three weeks. It's a short book of the New Testament, one of the 27 books of the New Testament, one of the 13 letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. Paul was the uh, Christian murdering Jew uh, that we read about in the book of Acts, who's converted. Jesus appears to him and saves him and actually not only makes him a Christian, obviously, and, and converts him on the road to Damascus, but also just calls him into this life of church planting and, and reaching people, Jews and Gentiles alike, uh, with, with the gospel that he formerly hated and rejected and persecuted. So he's the author. A couple things about Philemon. Uh, it's, so today's the first sermon, obviously, which is um, always kind of fun to do, but also a little bit different. It'll be a little bit more some uh, kind of teaching heavy on the front end of things. We'll still preach the greeting and so forth and, and get to some, uh, some good gospel meat a little bit later on, but a little bit different in terms of setting the stage for the book. The next week will be most of the letter. There's only 25 verses, I believe, in the book, and so we'll spend most of our time next week in the meat of the letter, then the third week, and kind of on the conclusion. And so, but today is uh, verses 1 to 7, Gospel Greetings and the Surprising Story of Philemon. Um, if you want to turn your Bibles to Philemon, it's right before Hebrews uh, to kind of get your bearings there, or this will be on screen here too, or a phone app you've got um, if you'd like to. It's kind of nice to have it all in front of you as like one whole book right in front of you. You can see every word as we preach these next few weeks versus like Acts was last year, for example. So, um, so a new series today. We, um, so a couple of things to set the stage for the book. Paul, again, is the author, writing this book around AD 60, to get your historical variants a little bit there. He's in Roman house arrest, uh, which is how Acts ended. So remember, um, if you're here for our series in the book of Acts, how Acts ended in Acts 28. Paul's in house arrest in Rome. That's right where he wrote this book. And there's four what we call prison epistles, Philemon, or prison letters of the New Testament. Philemon's one of them. Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians, I believe, are the other three. Um, But Philemon's Philemon's one of them. And so Paul writes four of the letters, four of his 13 letters. He actually is writing um, in that context, which is kind of cool. So writing Colossians at the same time as this letter because uh, Philemon's from Colossae, the city in Asia Minor. I'll talk about that here in a second, but uh, both those letters get sent uh, to uh, the same church, the same recipient um, in this guy named Philemon. So anyway, Paul is the, the author, again, AD 60, in house arrest. He's writing to a wealthy Colossian Christian named Philemon. He's a wealthy nobleman in Colossae. Uh, it's a man that uh, he, Paul, knew personally and who he actually helped convert to Christianity when he passed through Colossae years before this. So Philemon's one of Paul, the Apostle Paul, the author of this book, one of his converts from um, months or years before this when he passed through the city and planted a church uh, there. So um, the meat of the letter then, which I'll talk about next week, has to do with a bondservant or slave of um, Philemon's named Onesimus here on, on the bottom. So a bondservant or slave of his, uh, named Onesimus, who stole from Philemon, then fled to Rome. This is the context of the book, some of which comes up in the book, some of which we just know kind of from, we piece together from other parts of like Acts and so forth and, uh, and just history as well. Uh, but we'll see some of this come up next week. The meeting this will come up next week. But this is the context. This is what happens. Onesimus steals from Philemon, then flees to Rome, then who meets Paul. He's not a Christian yet. He meets Paul in Rome, just happens to meet him in house arrest, then Paul converts him as well. So it's a really cool story. Like, so both of these guys on the bottom here, Philemon and Onesimus, are converts to Christianity. 
uh, through Paul, but at different times. And so Onesimus just happens to meet him in Rome, and they have a conversation. Paul preaches the gospel, shares the gospel with him, he, and he converts. So really, really cool happenstance there, right? Which is not chance, but still, uh, God, is, God is good in all that. So the occasion of the letter of Philemon, then, is that Paul's writing back to Philemon. So after he meets Onesimus, after Onesimus shares his story, like, I stole from Philemon, um, now I'm, like, kind of at odds with him, like, what do I do, and all this stuff. So Paul's writing back to Philemon to instruct him on how to receive Onesimus back. And so he had no intention to go back, Onesimus uh, did, but Paul's going to send him back and say, what's most important now for you as Christian brothers is to reconcile, and he's going to encourage Philemon to forgive him, to receive him back as a brother this time, not just an employee, but, an, but a brother. Their statuses have kind of like changed now. We're now their family, whereas before they, they weren't. And so, um, so more on all of that next week. We'll see kind of the, the, again, the meat of the letter, the gist of it, we'll talk about next week. But it's good to just kind of know where we're going and to kind of inform some of the early uh, stuff that's going on here in the greeting too with how Paul addresses um, Philemon. But just on like, on one level, isn't that just an amazing story though? Like that, that 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 could even happen, that that would even happen, that Onesimus would just like, like when we're reading Philemon, we should, we should ask this, right? Like, really? Onesimus just happened to somehow run into Paul in Rome? Like, kind of a big city. You know, what, what, are, the, what are the odds of that? What are the chances of that? And of course, as Christians, we don't really speak in terms of chances. Um, there's a wonderful little passing phrase in the Lord of the Rings books that says, an arrow aimed by skill or guided by fate, pierced his hand. And similarly, Onesimus here finding Paul, it, it didn't just happen. Philemon was guided by fate, uh, or Onesimus was guided by fate. He, he was ordained or appointed to find Paul um, by God so that Christ might find him and save him from his sins. That back in Acts chapter 5, it says, again, about people who are not Christians yet here in the gospel, it says, those who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Those who had been appointed to believe, those who had been softened to the message, those who had been chosen by God, those are the ones that responded to the preaching of Paul. Those are the ones that responded to the preaching, in this case, the preaching of the, the early apostles, the disciples, or, or Peter. They're the ones that responded. And so the, the gospel in this is, the consoling lesson in this is, God does not leave things to chance. We do because we're not all-powerful and as loving as God. But God does not leave things to chance, ever. He's way too loving to be that kind of God. And, and the good news for us here is that our story is not that different from Onesimus's, And we'll see that play out uh, throughout the book. God guides our destinies as well. And he does not leave our salvation uh, to, to chance. And so the silent, sovereign hand of God, just in the context, we're not even in the book yet, and the context of the book is the same sovereign, secret hand of God that those of us who are Christians in the room that guided us to believe the first day we believed. And those of you who are not yet Christians, who are in this room, he's guided you to be here, to, to hear him call out to you so that you too might be, be saved by hearing the gospel today. All right? Now, a word on uh, slavery in the Roman Empire. Well, this is the occasion, again, uh, which I talked about. A word on slavery in the Roman Empire. Um, just a couple of minutes on this. If you want more, uh, let me know. I can point you to some great uh, source material on this, uh, on the subject. 
Uh, but, but in short, we have to talk about this. This is, um, some of your Bibles say slave and some say bondservant. It's the same Greek word. Uh, so we translate that. It's the same, it means the same thing, but just essentially it means like, um, I guess not really housemaid kind of, but like house servants or employee basically or kind of low class employee. Um, but before we get to this, uh, and we'll start with this. So in short, we have to remember that Philemon is pre-abolitionist and pre-American Civil War history, obviously, right? So it'd be very anachronistic to say otherwise and to believe otherwise. This is written 2,000 years ago, so it's much before that era of, of history. And so for us, on this side, historically, of the transatlantic slave trade, when we hear slavery, certain things come to mind that weren't necessarily a part of Roman culture. And so when it came to how slavery looked in Rome, uh, here are some important generalizations to note, though there's much more to say. Uh, these are very important things to understand as they differ from like, how we might, or what we might think of when we think of um, slavery. All right, the first is, Slavery was not divided along racial lines. Second, it had more to do with social status and a type of work performed for employers or masters or owners of a homeowner estate, and so they were paid. And three, freedom could be purchased or in other ways obtained. So in short, and I put it up here in the second one, think of it again as like a lower class job that many people had. It's estimated that one in five Roman inhabit inhabitants of Rome uh, were slaves or bond servants. And so many, many, many people had this job or this social status. Yes, some were forced into it, and yes, yes, some were mistreated, but in general it was not what we think of when we think of the transatlantic racially imbued slave trade that we're on this side of in history. We have to separate them out or it's going to raise so many unanswered questions in this book and we're going to like totally miss the point and, and a bunch of other stuff as well that we'll kind of maybe touch on as we, as we go along here. So Again, it was very, very different in Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon's day, which is partly why you don't see Paul call it out here. If it's the same kind of slavery happening here as it happened later in history, like in, like in our history, you would see Paul call it out. Paul was not above getting angry at his churches, having a righteous, godly anger against sin. If it was like this deep, unrepented of sin in his churches that was causing harm, especially between people, like, it was, if it was a sin pattern, he would call it out. He does that in other letters of, of the New Testament. So why doesn't he do that here if, in fact, it is like a, a sinful form of um, bondservantness or, or slavery? And so it's partly why you don't see that happen. He focuses on other things uh, because of, of these uh, historical um, points here, all right? So sort of related to this, and, and also sort of as an aside at the same time, the occasion to the letter is not emancipation. It's not emancipation as much as it is about the gospel and related themes of love, reconciliation, and forgiveness. In other words, it's about the theme of deliverance from slavery to sin for all of us than it is about a social status change for Onesimus. But when I say that, this does not mean that the Bible here is somehow endorsing slavery in any form either. Paul's not like an advocate for Roman bondservantness. He's not an advocate for the way the Romans did things either. Like he's not, he's not saying that. It doesn't come up at all. And so it's not that either. It's not like Paul is endorsing all of Philemon's actions themselves as though he's like this perfect guy or something like that. But again, in the Bible, we see that Paul is much more concerned about saving people from their sins than upheaving social structure. 
He's not egalitarianizing everything. He's showing how the gospel can inform relationships between all different types of people. And a great, uh, like, like a, a counterpart piece to this in the Bible, again, is the book of Colossians, which I won't read it in full context here, but remember, that's the same letter, or another letter, given to the same exact church at the same time. All right, so Philemon, the book of Philemon, book of Colossians, they go uh, by the hand of Onesimus or another one of Paul's like associates, and they go and they, they're handed the same church, right? In Colossians, Paul addresses masters and bondservants. And here's what he says. Bondservants, obey your masters, submit to them. And like you submit to God through Jesus Christ and like reflect that in how you operate underneath your employer. Then he says to masters, be kind to your bondservants and treat them fairly, pay them with a fair wage and be kind and gentle with them. Like you're kind of reflecting a God figure almost uh, to them in that, in that type of relationship. What he does not say is that because of the gospel has come into your city now and you are Christians, that you need to abolish all forms of hierarchy on every level. He does not say that. We have to ask why, right? Like he's, again, Paul's not above, he's not like, if you know a little bit about Paul, he's not like afraid of stirring the pot a little bit here, right? The gospel is not a social upheaving thing all the time. That happens sometimes, of course, but the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are different. When they get blended, and many do this, many people do this. It's all over the place. When you blend the two, it gets hard then to eventually pull them apart or to understand or to, to uphold the cross as opposed to like um, social issues, even though both can be important. All right, so Jesus does this as well. Jesus models this in his ministry. When Jesus interacts with people, he rarely seeks social status change for them. Sometimes he does, but it's rare. Instead, what he always wants is for them to follow him, for them to be reconciled to God, for them to believe in him. He wants their belief in him, their trust in him, so they, they can be saved and have eternal life. Whatever, wherever they are, like on the social totem pole, like he just wants all of them to be saved, rich and poor, male, female, slave and free. These dualities are held out in the Bible a lot to say that the gospel is truly for all all people. It's impartial. At one time, Jesus actually, uh, when a cripple is lowered down through a roof, and the clear intent is, can you please heal my friend of his paralysis? Or the, from the paralytic's perspective, can you please heal of my paralysis? That's the clear intent. Remember what Jesus does in Mark 2? What's the first thing he does? He forgives him of his sins, which is just this I don't know if people are laughing then or not. I laugh when I read it. It's kind of comical, I think. But it's just like, that's great, Jesus, but we didn't want that. Like, we wanted, I wanted to walk again. You know, but Jesus knows what's more important. The gospel is healing from sin paralysis, not my legs working again. Even though Jesus does that, there is a hierarchy to it. There is an order of importance. And it matters. The question of what is the gospel, which does the gospel line up with more, does matter. It's one of the the most important questions you can ask when you read the New Testament, those portions of the gospel accounts in, in the New Testament. So, again, so we have to ask ourselves, when all, we get confronted with all of this stuff, we have to really read the Bible and really ask the tough questions. Like, do we believe all of this? Does our view of Christianity jive with the Bible's? Or is it our, just our view, our version of Christianity? Do we believe Philemon or what Philemon is showing us about, you know, things like order of importance. 
and themes of salvation or about Christian living or Christian ministry? Or are we placing what we feel to be most important over the Bible storyline like a grid and reading things into it that just aren't there? Super easy to do. And the best way to guard against that is to let the Bible speak for itself and to read it in community with other people because we're all biased. So something to keep in mind uh, these next three weeks as we read, I'll probably mention this again each of the next two weeks because some people won't, aren't, aren't here for today and it's just so important to understand all these definitions and terms and main characters and what the main point is so then it's kind of muddled. And so we're not prevented from seeing Jesus primarily in it for the sake of some kind of social cause. All right? Let's start then with Philemon 1 to 3 today. There are no, there's no chapter because it's one chapter. So there's no kind of chapter mark. We just say Philemon 1 to 3 because there's just uh, 25 verses in it. All right? Here we go. Uh, Philemon verses 1 to 3. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. He's in Rome, remember. He's a prisoner, literally. And Timothy, our brother, one of his associates. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. And Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so a very standard uh, Pauline introduction, a very standard way that New Testament letters begin. If you've read uh, more of them, this might sound familiar. It was kind of a cultural way to, uh, to address letters, but this is a Christianized version, kind of a template. Uh, but the template basically is he identifies himself right, uh, right away as the author, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm the one sending the letter. Timothy is is a kind of younger disciple or associate, the pastor of, of the church in Ephesus, um, or at least uh, eventually will be. And so he identifies him as well. Then he identifies uh, Philemon as the recipient. Uh, Aphia was probably his wife. She's mentioned as well. Archippus uh, was another Christian who was a part of his church in Colossae. Might have been his son. Some people think we don't know for sure. And then others in his house church as well. Then he greets them. He says, grace and peace to you. That was a very common thing, too, to kind of wish grace and peace, especially as Christians kind of Christianized the cultural greeting. They put in uh, grace and peace to you uh, from, from God the Father and the Son, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But a quick thing to note here is that this letter was meant to be read by more than Philemon, right? What's that tell us about the meaning? More people than just Philemon are supposed to read it right? Even though it was clearly, we'll read the letter more next week, but it's clearly all about him in one sense, like it's directed right to him and what he's going to be like when he, hopefully, when he receives Onesimus back as a brother, but like this is meant to be read. Paul wants the whole letter to be read to everybody in the house church, which tells us this is not just circumstantial. It's theological. There's theology here. This is, this is like us saying, even though David wrote, wrote the Psalms, God wrote it through him. And, and it's, there's theology there that goes way beyond the original author's intention and the original context. It's the same thing as saying that. But we just say it here by, by, by way of Paul saying, I want the whole church to hear the theology in this because it matters to them as well. So a couple quick things then about the greeting. Uh, first, just note what I'll call here uh, is the oddly diverse but beautiful community called the church. This is easy to miss, and if you don't know some things about like who these people were, it's even easier to miss. Um, but in, sh in this short greeting, we see the following types of people mentioned. So hang with me for a second. 
These are all the types of people listed out here in and in the book of Philemon. Okay, we see prisoners, we see wealthy noblemen, we see lower class bond servants, if you include Onesimus, which we'll talk about next week. You see men and women, you see old and young, you see Greeks and Jews, married and single, popular and unpopular, known and unknown, named and unnamed, religious and irreligious, moral and immoral. And here's the thing, they're all equally a part of God's family by, verse 3, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just let that sink in for a second. Isn't that amazing? Christianity really is for all. And as Rebecca McLaughlin says, the most diverse, multicultural, and multi-ethnic movement in all of human history. Another way to look at this and to go back to how I started the sermon is Christianity is not about elitism, nor is it some spiritual form of Marxism either. It's about something else altogether. And that is Jesus' death and resurrection for all, given impartially to sinners by grace. Hence, the makeup of the church in Colossae, in Rome, and in Minneapolis. All right, then Paul says, uh, so more commentary on, on verse 3, grace and peace, again, which, which was customary. But it's really helpful whenever I start series on Pauline letters. I always like to start this way. Like, think about the phrase grace and peace. Think about how beautiful it is, how, how like, emblematic it is of the whole Christian faith, summative it is of the whole Christian faith. And then think, what if he didn't say that? Or what if he said the opposite of grace and peace? What's the opposite of grace and peace? Like, what if he said, to the church in Colossae, works and war to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which he never says, right? Law and war to you. How comforting. The letters of the New Testament never begin that way, but we should not take that for granted. It's always grace, undeserved merit. It's always peace. It's never wishing law upon us or conditionality. It's never like acknowledging an existing war going on between us and God. The gospel is not a court summons. It's a love letter. It's not a fight called a fight for your life, but a declaration of peace because Jesus is the one who fought for us by slaying sin, dark angels, and death. And so any wartime mentality that we have as Christians, and we do have it, any wartime mentality we do have is, is had in light of the victory already won by Jesus. But here's what's even more important. Peace in Christian theology is not just the idea that Jesus slays evil for, uh, for us, but, but even more now that Christ, in, in Christ and through him, we now have peace with God. So it's both. Both are good. But it's not just saying that, that in and through Christ, you know, Jesus, through the gospel, Jesus slays evil for for us, but that now in and through Christ and what he's done for us when he died for our sins, in and through that, we as sinners have peace with God. Because the Bible calls us, if we're Christians, we were former enemies of God. We weren't um, looked upon as like worthy recipients of grace, but we were enemies. We, we were at enmity with him. But, but here's the problem. If that's the case, 
and we, and we heighten the problem when we say it this way. If that's the case, enemy reconciliation cannot be fixed by good works done apart from the bro- broken relationship itself. All right, so, so what I mean by this is, like, if you have an enemy, someone who's really, really deeply hurt you or offended you or hated you or wronged you in some way, like, that relationship can't be mended if that person over here is doing a bunch of good with their life that doesn't relate to you, you know? So, like, on a lesser level, maybe if, if a marriage is having problems, well, you might not call them enemies, um, but, like, if there's problems, like, in a marriage, or, like, if I hurt Aletha, and I go across the street and mow my neighbor's lawn, Aletha's, Aletha's not going to say, oh, all of a sudden we're fine, you know? Like, because you did that, all of a sudden we're fine. Like, we, we have no more problems. Like, she's not going to say that, right? This never works. Like, good works done apart from the relationship itself does not mend an enemy relationship or a, an at-odds relationship. Does that make sense? It's the same with God. Your good works do nothing to reconcile you with him. Nothing. Your enemies with him. You need something more drastic to happen to reconcile you to him. So, in other words, we don't think this way on a human level. Then how much more should we not think this way on a divine level with God? And the good news is, God's not asking for this. And the better news is, he's the one who does the drastic thing. He dies for us. He lays down his weapons. He comes as the ultimate olive branch by becoming human. He became human so he could die for us. And that kind of love wins us over. That kind of love tears down walls between hostile parties. But that is death language. That is gospel language. That is drastic language that's apart from good works. It it is love. Love has to happen, right? And the way God loved us is not vague. It is very drilled in, focused, and specific. God loved us by dying for us. He loved us by sending his son to die on a cross for our sins. So now enemies become sons and daughters. Enemies are adopted. Enemies are reclassified, right? This is part of the gospel as the Bible teaches it. Let's continue on. Philemon 4 to 7. Paul continues. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in, that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. All right, so wonderful little exchange here. A very happy one, a very positive one. Again, like I talked about before, um, there's, very, there's very little, if any, rebuke of Philemon here, like Paul has for others of his, peop- his churches or people in the churches. But here's the first question. Why is Paul thankful here? This is the first interpretational question. Why is Paul thankful? The answer is, he hears about Philemon's, well, two things. He hears about Philemon's love for the church and his faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so don't dismiss that as kind of obvious or too simple. That's extremely important. I'll come back to that in a second. But that's why he's thankful. But this is the second question. To whom is Paul thankful? Who's he thankful to? 
God, right? Not Philemon. Philemon's recognized, but he says, I thank my God every time I remember you for these things. Which tells us what then about the things? Who's the source? It has to be God, right? He's thanking the source. The source of Philemon's love for the church and the source of his faith at all, his belief is God. They're gifts. They're not something that originate with our good intentions. That doesn't mean that, that, you know, all of this circumvents real choices that we make daily to value these things like we're lifeless puppets or something. It means that Jesus is one with us by our faith. And so we have a new perspective on where the source of good works comes from. It's not from us. It's from the Spirit within us, the Holy Spirit of God within us. And so as we choose to believe in the gospel, as we, cho- as we choose to have faith, as we choose to love other Christians, Jesus' Spirit cooperates with those choices. He breathes those choices into existence. He moves in our heart to want them in the first place. So that again, it's always ultimately proper to thank God for these things, not other people. And that doesn't mean that we never say thank you to people for things. Like if someone does something for you, we say, it's not like we have bad theology. (laughs) We say, you know, Thanks for that gift, Taylor. I appreciate that. You know, like, oh, bad theology. All of a sudden, sound the, hit the heresy button, you know? That's, 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 not, that's not the point. But the point is, we can say thank you to others, but then we can acknowledge in our mind, where does that good ultimately come from? It's not Taylor. It's not us. It's God. We have to let these things, they're easy to read over. But why isn't Paul thanking Philemon? Why doesn't he do that? This should, this is radical Amazing theology here, but should shape the way that we think and we talk as well uh, towards each other as believers. So, so with that said, the two things, love for the church and faith, are wonderfully summative of what it means to live daily as a Christian. 1 John 3.23 says, And this is God's command to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love other Christians. So, John here, different author, he's writing to the church and he's saying that this is the new command. In the New Testament, there are not many laws at all. There's just Jesus, really. But this is the new command. This is the new way. We, we talk primarily of two things. Belief in the gospel, belief in Jesus that he, that he died for our sins and rose again, and then we love other Christians really well. We, we reflect that love to other believers so they might be mutually built up and encouraged because they're so forgetful like us. We all forget we, we remind through word and deed. We remind through sacrificial acts of generosity and kindness and love and service to each other. That's what it means to be a believer. Yes, there are other things you can say about our lives, of course, but, but that is wonderfully summative as John writes here. And Jesus says the same thing in John 13.34. If you want to look that, look that up later. John 13.34 in context at the Last Supper says, says the, same, the same thing. So Philemon is a great example of this. You know, so great questions for us uh, as, as uh, individuals, and, and it, but more so, a whole church. Like, what do we work on as a church? How do we spend our time? What do other believers think of when they think of us or other churches? What are we known for? Are we spending time growing in our knowledge of the gospel and of the Bible and theology, building up our faith and others' faith? And simultaneously, are we demonstrating love for our church regularly? 
In Revelation 2, Jesus says the same thing to the church in Thyatira. I hear of your love and faith. Same words. This time right from the mouth of Christ. They all are from the mouth of Christ. But, you know, more explicitly here. I hear of your love and faith. It is not, this is where it starts to like, we need to let this sink in a little bit. It's not unwise for us to strive to be like this church in Thyatira and the church in Colossae and like Philemon particularly. It is not unwise to think about this, think about our lives and to watch our doctrine closely, to care deeply about the gospel itself explicitly and then to care deeply about loving the church. And it's just, it's so easy to get caught up with that second one in mind, caught up with doing good outside the church as Christians, which isn't wrong, of course. It's part of our life. But here's the thing. It's easy to get caught up with that at the expense of neglecting our spiritual siblings. And that's not okay. Like Philemon here is not recognized for local volunteerism. Is he? Is Paul saying, wow, you, just, you volunteered so well at the food shelf and my heart's refreshed in that. He's not saying that. Like, maybe that would refresh his heart. That's not a bad thing. That's not what he's recognized for. What's he recognized for? Loving other Christians in his church that he knew. This is not global humanitarianism Christianity. This is local church-focused Christianity. And we cannot truly be believers if we don't do this. Like, this is so central to what it means to be a spirit-filled believer that values the gospel and heeds the call of our Savior, Jesus wants his siblings to show love. So the love of Jesus himself might be in that love, and the love might not just be talked about but seen. So many reasons. <clears throat> and what we see here then is Christians' hearts near and far were refreshed when they heard about this in Philemon. And, and now, if we ask why they were so refreshed, to get a little bit more philosophical about it and more deeply theological, like, why were they truly refreshed? What happens when Christians love each other that doesn't happen when just random people love each other? What happens there? What's mystically happening? Part of the answer to that is to go back over the passage, kind of wash it, give it a wash, and go back with fresh eyes and look at it from a different angle. <clears throat> and it starts with this statement. There's another Philemon in this passage. There's two of them. So what I mean is the, the New Testament letters, this is an important interpretational principle if you're new to the Bible. The New Testament letters are letters, but they're not simply between Christians writing to each other about Christian theology. They are letters to us from God. If we don't believe that, and the Bible says that about itself, if we don't believe that, we're going to miss this whole better layer of Philemon 1-7. to God's the author, not Paul. So they express them. What that means is they express God's feelings towards us as well. Kind of like the Psalms in the Old Testament were clearly David's words, who wrote them 3,000 years ago. But the Bible says they're really Christ's words. Jesus really spoke them. David wrote them, but it was truly Jesus in those words spiritually. And so when we read the Psalms, we, we see whispers of that all over the place. So then, applying that here, so do we see whispers of Jesus' words here too in Philemon, even though Paul was the one who originally penned them. There are a few things more important interpretationally than that to guide you in understanding what the Bible actually means.
means. Meaning is the ultimate question, right? When we read this book, it's, well, what does it mean? What's it mean for me? This divine layer of seeing God as the ultimate author is not just optional, it is necessary uh, to see. All right, so, so when we do this then, all of a sudden, Philemon's characteristics become pictures of Christ's for us. So like in verse 7, for example, for I, Paul says, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So again, this is Paul speaking about Philemon, but it could also be said that this is every Christian speaking about Christ, the true brother to us, right? Who's become like a brother to us because he became human. I mean, do we not derive much joy and comfort from Jesus' love? Of course we do, on a much higher level than Paul does about Philemon's. Has, has Jesus not refreshed our hearts through his death and resurrection? Proverbs 15.30 says, The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. And then it says, And good news, or the gospel, refreshes the bones. Song of Solomon 2.5 says prophetically and longingly and poetically about Christ beforehand. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples from faint with love. The key words here, of course, being refresh and refreshes. Acts 3.20, most explicitly saying, repent, turn, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And this refreshing has less to do with, oh, that's such a nice story, I'm refreshed. And much more to do with, Jesus has resuscitated me on the medical stretcher in the ER when I was lying there lifeless. Ezekiel 36 gets at this when it says that it promises Jesus will grant brand new hearts. Not encourage us a little bit with an anecdotal story to brighten our day. It's not the gospel. This is like, this is real. And it's more drastic. But, but here's the kicker. In order to do that, in order to grant a brand new refreshed heart, Christ had to have his own heart pierced. His own hands pierced. His own heart pierced with grief and his body with literal spears and thorns and flagellums. It's, it's believed that cardiac arrest was the thing that finally killed Jesus. His heart arrested, his heart seized up. It stopped so that yours and mine might start again. Or to preach the gospel using the language of Philemon 7, which we should do, Christ became unrefreshed so you might become refreshed. That's the gospel. Christ substituted himself and became unrefreshed there so we might have our hearts refreshed because that's where love is shown. So like Philemon is giving a glimpse of this. The man Philemon is giving a glimpse of this. He's saying, Paul's saying, you've shown love to the church and it's kind of refreshed others who hear about it. How much more do we apply that here? His love there has refreshed the church on a higher level. This is the deeper meaning, or as the early church called it, the sensus planur, the deeper meaning of a passage that goes beyond the surface and goes deeper into the depths of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Philemon, though we don't know exactly how he was loving his church, this is what we know about Philemon. It's a short letter, so we don't know a lot of detail, but we know this. 
Philemon must have suffered for his church. How do we know that? How do we know Philemon must have suffered for his brothers and sisters in the church? The answer is you can't love someone without suffering for them. You can't. Love is suffering. Love is letting go of your preferences. Love is putting someone else first. Love is taking a bullet. Love is considering someone else more important than yourself. These are all either explicit or implicit things the Bible says about love. Jesus himself says, the greatest form of love is when you lay down your life for someone else. You cannot love someone truly without suffering somehow. So we know Philemon was suffering for his church. We know this. There's no other category for it. So then he all the more becomes a Christ figure because he suffered in love. He all the more becomes an image of Jesus in his suffering-ridden love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And that, that's the point. That's what we're seeing in Philemon today. It really, a, we're seeing a duality almost, or, or a relationship between two things. We're seeing a, a, a lighthearted, this is what you might have felt when we read the first seven verses, a lighthearted, encouraging, peace-filled greeting, full of love and prayers of thankfulness, like you see a lot of Paul's letters start with. But what's, what's the part of the iceberg beneath the water? What's beneath all of that? What's undergirding all of that stuff I just mentioned? Glimpses of deep suffering, pierced skin, stricken with grief heart, and a love that sent Jesus to hell on our behalf. In the same way, this is what I think our church should look like. And by God's grace, it really does. But it doesn't mean that we should stop or rest on our laurels. We see this happening here, but both those things have to happen and play off of each other. And this is a, kind of a standalone thing for today, but this is partly preparatory for next week too. I'm doing all this, so it's a, it's a preparation for seeing all the more how the story of the gospel plays out in the story of Onesimus, in the story of Philemon, in the story of Paul. All right, so have that in mind as you read it this week. If you'd like to, I encourage you to read ahead and mark, mark it up and look for, look for the gospel in the story. But this is also kind of standalone as well. But this idea that churches, our church, Hiawatha should look like this. In many ways, outwardly, full of love for one another, full of thankfulness to God for each other and for the good we're seeing in each other, prayers for each other. Or how about this one? non-competitiveness towards each other because we're saved by grace, not by works. That is one of the, um, the, I think the biggest marks of a grace-filled church is you don't compete with each other because you're saved by grace. You're not graded by anything else except him right there, what he's done for us, which is not really a grade. We don't do anything. We just believe in him, right? A grace-filled church, we, kind of like Paul here celebrating Philemon for a lot of good, Paul's not, you don't get this sense that Paul's like, dang, I want to be more like Philemon. Dang, I feel bad about myself. Dang, am I really a Christian? Dang, I haven't... You don't get that impression at all. What makes us celebrate with others without envy? What causes that? How do you get there? The answer is him right there. If we're saved by him there, and it's a gift not earned, if everything's given, nothing's earned then we can celebrate more with people who God is using mightily in our church or 
God has done an amazing thing through. We can celebrate with that. And like Paul to Philemon, we can celebrate this without envy or jealousy. So this is, this is how our church can look as well, kind of a la Philemon 1 to 7. We can greet one another with grace and peace. We can encourage one another. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. All right, so here's the two things, though, again. That's the above the, above the water iceberg portion. What's beneath the water? What's the main part of the iceberg that you can't see all the time? Even though, I guess we can kind of see it, but whatever. Like, what's beneath the water? What's, or what's the foundation? Underneath all of that stuff is a true blood-stained gospel that informs all of that love and peace. Stories of sacrifice and war and darkness and earthquakes and demonic heckling and torturous suffering. Yet through it all, Jesus had victory and, and there's an open grave that first Easter morning. All of that undergirds our actions of love. And, and so when you, when you hold your Bible open to a, a place like Philemon, we can be wrestling with both sides of it, right? Like, God, thank you for what you're doing at Hiawatha. Thank you for what you're doing in the lives of my friends. Thank you that you're saving people. Thank you for the grace that you showed me through my friend. That's from you. And we can, we can work, we can strive to be people of love for the church, drilled in, and people are working on our doctrine. And yet, at the same time, we can just kind of wash that off and put, or put that over here on the shelf and say, it's good. We can look at it a second time and say, Jesus has refreshed my bones. That's what this is about. Jesus is inside Philemon. He's the source of Philemon's love. So why can't we make these connections theologically? We have to. Is it from him or God? What does Paul say? It's from God. Every good thing is from him. And so he's there. He's whispered. His suffering, the suffering-ridden love that he showed us there, is, it's like a rock in a still lake. It's like that's the splash, but it sends ripple effects, ripples out into the world, into your lives, the lives of those around you, into churches. And we see them, we sense them, we hear them. But... So this is, what we, this is what we can do. We can refresh the hearts of the saints, yet never make that your standalone calling in life. Faith's more important. Faith and refreshment in the fact that his heart was pierced for you. And then seeing the interplay between those two things in a healthy, balanced, biblical manner, it is one of the bigger marks of maturity in a Christian life is to not make it about us, but to make every text about Christ. And so we can work on that too in community, which we will have ample opportunity to do these next two weeks as well. We pray for us. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for refreshing our hearts, Jesus, through your death and resurrection. And that Philemon is a glimpse, a whisper, a shadow, a very beautiful one, but not the reality. God, so we don't celebrate Philemon, we celebrate the Christ who is in him. We celebrate the second Philemon in this passage, who is definitely there, praised, named, at the very beginning of the passage, Jesus Christ's name comes up. It's all about him. So, Father, as a church, please, Spirit, create in us a, a greater love for each other and help us in our faith um, that we might take our doctrine seriously, that we might watch it closely, and that we might grow in, in knowledge of the gospel which is the good news that Jesus shed his blood for our sins, who became unrefreshed that we might become refreshed, resuscitated, recreated, and renewed. 
um, forever because the hope is eternal life as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.